Listen, who remembers who were the first people in the worst day of Jesus' life, which was the cross? Who were the first people there? The first people at the cross with Jesus, the first ones to support him to be there, were the women. Were the women. Were the women. Who were the first people at the tomb on Sunday morning? The women. Who were there for Jesus' most significant moments of his ministry? The women. There was other people too. But the women seemed to be there always to capture the most important moments and to speak of and to see and to be with Jesus in the most difficult times as well as the most beautiful times. When Jesus uh, comes back to life, when Jesus is risen, the women go there and they see it. They are the first eyewitness account at the tomb. Where is it that the women are always there at the right time? They were there at the right time and then they went and tell the others. That's what happened, right? So this morning we're going to try to do that here. We're going to have the women come and tell us first account of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And we have uh, several women here that are, we've asked to come. So, uh, Julissa, come read Isaiah 53. Where are you? If you have your Bibles, make sure they open their Bibles. All right. So we're going to be reading from Isaiah 53. All righty. Okay. So who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And when we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of all of us. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But... It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many, many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. morning wow what a piece of scripture i mean if we even understand truly fully understand it so i was trying to prepare something that would take about four to five minutes and you know as you read the word you think oh my gosh where am i going to find time to say something in four minutes 
not that I like to speak, but there's so much in the Word of God that is so rich that when we look at the Word, we think, oh, no, I have to say this. Oh, no, I have to say that. Oh, no, there's so many things that the Lord has done for us, right? But there can be no resurrection. There would have been no resurrection this morning if it wasn't for the cross, right? So today I'm going to start out with the cross, okay? But I want to I wanna start, up, start up with a declaration that's in the Scriptures that Paul said. Uh, he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And I know we know this verse off by heart. We say it so often, right? I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, now I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is in Galatians 2.20. But when Paul said this, he really meant what he said, right? Because when uh, Paul was met on the road to Damascus by the Lord, he had an encounter with God. But it wasn't only the encounter with God which made him change. You know, he decided that he would believe. He could have turned away. You know, he could have decided that he wasn't going to believe, even though the Lord said, I am the Lord, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He could have decided to turn away, but he decided to believe in what the Lord was telling him. And when he says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but he lives in me. He really meant it because when Paul decided to follow Jesus, he decided to leave his life behind completely. He really left his life behind from a life of status and of power because he was a man of power and a man of status. And he decided when he followed Jesus that he would truly die for himself. You know, and I often think to myself, are we really prepared when we say, Yes, Lord, I will follow, we, follow you. Are we really prepared to die for ourselves? Because um, Paul lost a lot. You know, when we die to ourselves, we are going to lose. Paul lost a lot. He lost his status, and I'm sure he was mocked by the Pharisees. I'm sure they looked at him and said, Oh, he's become one of those of the way, one of those followers. Um, he lost a lot, but... In the end, he gained. All right, he really gained. But today, I want to I want to speak about the cross. That was a perfect sacrifice that cannot be repeated ever again. And without the cross, we would be hopeless this morning. You know, it's a cross that has uh, given us life. Just imagine if there was no cross. Let's just imagine for a little bit in our minds here. Uh, we would be lost. There would be no hope for eternal life, right? Satan would probably be our friend, okay? We couldn't speak of redemption. There'd be no such a thing. Paul would have never been an apostle. The church would have never existed, okay? And Satan would have never been defeated, if we think about the cross, so because of Jesus' death, we have guaranteed immortality. You know, the tunnel uh, of uh, death and the, the, and, um, and it was crossed over to the other side. We now have eternal life because of the cross. Me and you, even though we are mortals, mortal beings, we have eternal life guaranteed for those who believe, right? His perfect sacrifice produced the birth of the church. It's us, me and you. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here. There would be no gathering. There would be no church. There would be no hope. There would be no family of families with one another. It wouldn't happen. And he was also the perfect sacrifice that was accepted by the Father. In the Old Testament, we see many um, sacrifices which they made that wasn't really accepted by, by the Lord. Some were, some were not. But this sacrifice, when Jesus died on the cross for us, was accepted for eternity. So this morning I wanted to just let you know that the blood of Jesus, it provides redemption. And what, what is that? Right? What, what is that? That means he was our substitute. 
Okay. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all our wickedness. Okay. He was our substitute. He died for us instead of us. Right? In our place. That's right. For us instead of us. Because we're the ones who deserve the death penalty. Right? We're the ones who deserve it. So he didn't cover our sins. He didn't cover our sins. He took it upon himself. He took the sins. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took the sins upon himself. So because of his sacrifices and his blood, he has purchased men from God from every tribe, every language, and every nation. Isn't that awesome? Aren't we so glad that there was the cross? Because he's purchased each one of us, me and you, so I don't want us to take it lightly this morning. We really have to think, why, Lord? So, And the blood of Jesus not, not only provides redemption, but it provides forgiveness. And that's the major thing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Just imagine that. We are able to come before the Father today, tomorrow, and yesterday, and know that when we repent... He's already forgiven our sins. Now all we have to do is really repent. But when we do, he's already paid the price for each one of us. And he's forgiven us. He's given us peace and reconciliation. Reconciled all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross for each one of us. And he purified us. If we confess our sins, we all know this. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then he justifies us. Okay, he made righteous. We are made righteous in the sight of God. Isn't that wonderful? When we come before the presence of the Lord, we are, we are clean. I don't think as humans we can even fathom that completely in our mind. Right, But when we come before him, we are clean. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we're doing and <laughs> what we're going to do. Because unfortunately we are sinners. But when he looks at us through the blood of Jesus, he sees his children. He loves us. When we look at, when we look at our children, no matter what they've done, no matter how upset we are with them, we look at them with love and we accept them. And, uh, and that's the same thing with the Lord. When he looks at us, you know, the Father, he doesn't see us. He sees his son, Jesus. You know, but there's a catch to it. You don't get away with it. He does want you to repent and to believe. You know, it's not a matter of I can do whatever I please, whenever I please. And I know, hey, I've got it all together and the Lord, he'll forgive me regardless. No. He really wants us to confess, repent, and believe. And he will do this for us. Okay. Let me see what else. And, and the most important thing, he's our victory. All right. So he has given us forgiveness. He's given us peace and reconciliation. He's given us purification. That We don't deserve any of this church don't deserve any of it he's justified us and he's given us victory okay now and i'm going to read in revelation 12 10 11 it says now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our god and the authority of his christ for the accuser of our brothers we all know who the accuser is right who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is our victory at the end of our life. We are overcomers because, first of all, Jesus died on the cross and when he did that, he defeated Satan and he defeated our enemy of our souls. He defeated him. And we are able to overcome by the blood of Jesus. 
And it says they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You know, are we prepared to love the Lord unconditionally like Paul did? Unconditionally knowing that no matter what, I'm going to lay my life down regardless. I'm going to lay it down regardless. So what am I saying with all this this morning? How many minutes do I have left? Um, he died and now lives forevermore. He became us to die on our behalf and purify us from all our sins. He is the secret for transformation. Because of him, we can be transformed. The cross brings change. So we cannot live in, in a lifestyle of pretense, church, anymore, each one of us. Some, you know, we all do some kind of pretense sometimes, some way or another. Okay? If we don't, then we liars. But let's stop with that. Jesus died for us. He did for us when he died on the cross what religion cannot do. Okay? What friends cannot give us. Okay? Doesn't matter how hard times are, we cannot run to, to, to our friends. You know, they might counsel us, they might pray for us, they might just sit and give an ear. But they cannot do for us what Jesus did. So when we come to him and when we believe in him, it's because only he can. There's nobody else, only he can. Jesus did what the church cannot do for us. Right? And the church is us. <laughs> so if we can't do it as humans... You know, the church cannot do it. So let's not refuse to believe in the sacrifice of the cross this morning and his resurrection. Okay, let's deny ourselves and follow Jesus. You know, we've got to remember that no man can serve two masters, right? We either serve one or we serve the other. There is no middle ground in the word of God. No middle ground. So who do we really want to serve in our lives? You know, we cannot, um, we cannot run to other people around us, but we can run to Jesus because he's the one who paid it all. Who do I want to serve this morning? Who do I want to believe? Who do I want to say yes to? So we're either all in. We either have to be all in when we truly decide to follow the Lord. We can't raise our hand and say, I accept Jesus, but then we're not all in. Then we haven't accepted anything. So we're either all in, or then one day we'll deny him. There is no middle ground, church. It's true. When life comes and presses you, or let's say uh, politics change, you know, and then all of a sudden you're not allowed to worship your God anymore. If we believe... We'll stick with him, but if we're not sure, we'll probably deny him. Okay, so let's make a choice today. The cross, the cross is not in vain, right? You know, like uh, the word says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. That is my motto in my life. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. And anyone who believes in me, Jesus says, will not perish but have everlasting life. And that's our hope this morning. That's the hope of the cross. That's the hope of the resurrection. Anyone, anyone who believes in me will not perish, will not die, have ever, but have everlasting life. Let's not refuse to believe in him, his sacrifice and his resurrection. I have a few things written here, but somehow I think the Lord is saying, don't say it. Anyway, let me finish with this. Like Paul did, he'd, we die to our past, right? We die to ourselves and instead be resurrected to a new life. Let's be those victorious ambassadors for Christ until we can truly say, I am crucified with Christ. Amen. Let's say it this morning, I am crucified with Christ in all I do. Amen.
So in order to talk about the resurrection, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Is that okay? Book of 1 Samuel. And we'll do this quickly from 1 Samuel. We're, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 10 and 1 Samuel 15. So as you're turning to 1 Samuel 10, it begins with God having sent the prophet Samuel to anoint Saul. And in, let me know when you're there. I hear some rustling. Okay, we're just going to pick through some of these verses, okay? So in 1 Samuel 10, at verse 1, the scripture says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, meaning Saul's, and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Then drop down to verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and to make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was, when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. So go with me now to 1 Samuel 15. So we saw that Saul was anointed king. Are you with me in chapter 15? Amen. Okay, let's look at a few verses. At verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him, when he w ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. So go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So just to give you a little bit of background, don't freak out. Remember, the Amalekites were wicked, ultimately wicked, okay? So drop down to verse 8. He also, so Saul... Uh, at verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that... They utterly destroyed. Go over with me now to verse 18. In chapter 15, go to verse 18. Now the Lord, this is Samuel now speaking to Saul. After Saul has gone and attacked the Amalekites, but he has not done what God told him to do. At verse 18, Samuel says, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So let's talk about what God told Samuel. When he anointed him, he said, I'm going to give you a new heart. Okay, that's the picture of the beauty of the resurrection. All right, when so we know, just as Tilly talked about, the Lord died for our sins, he was resurrected, that we would have eternal life. But when we accept him and his sacrifice, each one of us receives that new heart, right? The requirement of a new heart is a new life. 
That's what it's supposed to produce. What you see instead in this man anointed and chosen by God is a person who decides, I'm going to worship God in the way I want to. We don't get to do that anymore. The resurrection for you and I means that those old ways and those old habits are gone. We don't get to say to God, I'll worship you with steps 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9. It's all 10, whatever those are. And whatever he told his king to do, and, and by the way, we are a nation of kings and priests, are we not? Yes. Whatever he has told us to do, and if you aren't sure, you're holding it. Okay, whether you hold it physically or on your phone, you have the lesson plan for how to live and how to carry it out. And you and I don't get to claim that we have a new heart and still do what we want to do. And then tell the Lord, but I did almost everything you said. What is partial obedience? Disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. A resurrected life is a life that desires to obey God and obeys God. Amen? Amen. Good word. My phone's about to die, so... I rewrote my notes on this. <laughs> um, good morning. What a good day. Um, every time I think about the cross, um, I think about something one of my teachers told me where he said that uh, the cross is just the jaguar symbol, but all of history is the jaguar. And so to understand how awesome, when you see the jaguar symbol, we get it. We're like, ooh, a jaguar. Um, but that's because we understand the car. If we had no context of the car, the symbol would not be as important to us, right? We'd just, we wouldn't know that it was so great. <coughs> so um, I'm also going to go back to the beginning, and I know we have so many kids in here, and I'm going to try and make it s simple enough so that everyone understands, everyone can grasp today just what I remind myself of all the time, the power and significance of history and the cross. But back in the beginning, when God created man and woman, he created us to dwell with us and be with us, for us to be his people and for he to be our God. And he planted specifically a very special place where he could dwell with us. It's a sign and a symbol of heaven, this garden where we could be together. <coughs> Excuse me, where we could be together. Um, but humanity chose, which he gave us a choice, because he wanted us to choose him. But he, we chose disobedience. When the serpent came, we looked at the fruit that God said, don't eat that fruit. We looked at it and we said, well, our judgment call is that that looks good, even though you say it doesn't, it isn't right, it isn't good. And so when we sinned against God, God sent us east. We had to leave his presence because God is holy and he cannot dwell with sin. But in that moment, even when God was saying, man, you can't be with me. We can't be together anymore. Thank you. He preached the gospel. And this is one of my favorite verses. It's Genesis 3.15. This is right when all of it had gone down and everything was looking bad and humanity was walking away from the Lord instead of dwelling face to face, walking in the cool of the garden with him. And God came and he said to, Mary, to um, Eve, he said, I will put enmity between the serpent or the enemy and between your seed, capital S. And the enemy will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. And so right there in Genesis 3.15, right when humanity started pushing away from the Lord, he, he preached the gospel and told us that he has had a plan since the beginning of time to restore us to him, that we can be together again. And we read through the whole Old Testament that God was constantly pursuing us, a constant pursuit of love and a constant rejection of humanity. This is our story, guys. We have constantly rejected God, and he has constantly been seeking us out. Isaiah 65, 1 says that, you know, he says, God says, I was ready to be found by a people who weren't even seeking me. 
Um, and, and we know in the New Testament, it says that if you seek him, you will find him. God is so available. So we read through the whole Old Testament, and someday we should write a children's book about this because it's pretty awesome. But God, he, he put a guard in there for us. We left. Then he lived in like a, a you know, a, a mobile home. He, he, they built a tent for him so that God could be with his people, right? But he couldn't be with them because there was so much sin in the camp, so much times that they rejected God. Uh, so he built this special tent and he's like, I want to be close. I can't be right with you, but I want to be close. So I'm going to live in this tent. So God for a long time dwelt right in the tent in the middle of his people. And then when Solomon builds him a, a temple, it's a more permanent place. And Solomon, when he cries out to God, God's presence fills the temple and it's like clouds and darkness and it's powerful. So God is able to dwell with his people there, but it's still a different location. So this whole time, God is pursuing us in love because his desire is for us. And if we don't see the cross as the ultimate image of love and reconciling all of humanity to heaven, then we don't understand how can we fall in love with a man that we don't know has pursued us so dramatically in love, even when we were unfaithful to him. He's faithful to us and he's pursued us throughout all of humanity. Um, in Romans, I mean, I'm sorry, in Matthew 23, 37, when Jesus was here, right? So the plan that has been since the beginning of time for Jesus, for the Father, to be able to be with us, close to us, by us, not just in a temple over there where we're like, there's God over there. Um, you know, if we do enough sacrifice, we can send someone to speak with him for us to come and tell us what he says, right? So the plan is, is happening. Jesus is here. And Jesus is sitting on a hill looking down over his people, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times have I wanted to gather you like my little children and shelter you under my wing, but you, you don't listen. You kill the people I send to you. You reject the prophets. You stone them. So you can see the heart of Jesus. You can see the heart of Father God, that he has been longing for us since the beginning of time. And then... <clears throat> And then at the cross, I love whatever version it is you read, Jalicia, of that. I got to get that version and, and meditate on that. So we're at the cross, finally the apex, literally, of all of history, all of history, future, now, and past. This is the apex. This is where it all has gone down. Um, and Jesus is there, and he dies. Um, and the temple that is there the veil, thick blanket that separates us from the presence of God tears right down the middle. And me and the kids were just talking about this on the drive, and that's so significant because finally what God has been pursuing since the garden, since he created humanity, is happening where we don't have to go and send someone for us and his presence is just dwelling there, but his presence is literally able to dwell within us. This is the power of the cross, that when I have been unfaithful to God, he has been faithful to me. And that when I feel and know, this is the beauty of Christianity, guys, that other religions do not have. Other monotheistic religions, they, there is not hope unless you are good enough to reach God. You won't reach him. In Christianity, there's no hope. You will not be good enough to reach God, so you can just stop trying. God, in his goodness, reached down to us. This is the power of the cross. In Romans 8, 19 to 23, um, if you're writing notes, I just kind of am paraphrasing, but you can write the verses if you want. But it talks about, he's talking about, Paul's talking about how all of creation is awaiting and groaning for the revealing of what? Of the sons of God. That is us. So today, when we're meditating on the cross, when I'm meditating on the cross, I'm remembering God's reckless, like unmerited, most romantic, most challenging love pursuit of me and of you and of the church in general. 
And that's why he calls us his bride, because it's a romantic thing. The cross is a sign of his love that he was, has, since the beginning of history, been chasing us. And even when we turn our backs on him and we go to other people and we go to other nations and we look for security in other people or, you know, uh, drugs or money or whatever it may be at that time in history or today, God is still pursuing us. So I'm just challenging all of us to remember his great love today with the cross. And our response, you know, we can only love God because he loved us first. So if we're struggling with um, dedication to him, if we're struggling with sin, if we're struggling with commitment, if we're struggling with even passion, like, well, I know it's right, but oh, I don't love you really. I don't feel it. I mean, why, you know, we need to meditate on the fact that we can only love God because he first loved us. And what does that look like? And let's, let's pursue God this week and this month and this year and the rest of your life. But really, in, in, in reference to the cross and Easter, let's remember the great pursuit of our lover, our most faithful God, and how the cross makes it possible for him to literally be with us at all times, to walk again in that place in the garden of intimacy with God where we're not left to our own devices. So thank you, Father, for the cross. Yeah. So the Old Testament, somebody's glasses are up here. You need them. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah somewhere, it says that um, their heart trembled before God. So my heart is trembling this morning before the Lord because I'm so aware of the value he places on you guys. You know, and the word that's come forth this morning is so, so thank you guys so much for the word that you brought forth. Um... I want to take us to um, Hebrews in chapter, I've got my notes here, uh, chapter 10 and verses uh, 19. Um, well, let me, let me digress for a minute, and let's jump ahead to chapter 11 and verse 6. This is a verse the Lord gave to me um, a few months ago, and I've just been kind of chewing on it and meditating on it and thinking about what God uh, what that means for me and then for us as a, as a body of Christ because we are joined together, right? We're family and more than that, we're joined by the blood of Christ. So what the Lord speaks to us, he speaks to all of us. Um, so anyhow, this is a verse. It says, it, says, it says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that scripture sounds like we need to have something in order to pursue the Lord. But now let, let me take you someplace. It's Ephesians um, 8, 2. I'm sorry, there's no 8 in Ephesians, by the way. So Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So the very faith that God expects us to have in order to pursue him, he gives to us. It's his gift to us to have that faith to pursue him, to pursue him. And then when we do pursue him, he rewards us. Is that awesome? So he gives us the ability to pursue him. He says, now pursue me. And then he rewards us for that by giving to us the wisdom and the understanding of his word. It, revelation of the knowledge of his word. And I, I was so excited about that because sometimes we think our rewards need to be physical things like, right, like money and food and stuff like that. But that's not the reward that God gives us. It's the understanding of his word. It's his character. It's the understanding of his character that he gives us. I'm so excited about that. So I'm going to um, finish this with um, um, scripture in Matthew. In chapter, uh, 
Matthew chapter 6, something you all know, and it's the Lord's Prayer. So in this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That is so. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you, if you think about that for a minute, okay? I mean, God is asking us to pray that his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, right? Us. He's asking us to pray with him that. He's asking us to ask him for our daily bread, which he knows we already have need of, and yet he's asking us to participate in this prayer for our needs and the needs of each other. You know, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That means as we pray for our families, for our needs, for the, for the city, for whatever it is that God has put on us, our hearts to pray, he's asking us to partner with him, us, like us, right? And I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the potter's clay. And I have this, like this rabbit I made at home, and I thought, oh, I'll bring that rabbit, because it's just a piece of clay, and it's really cute and everything. But we are His creation, and He's asked us to partner with Him in prayer, right? Okay, so this is the story I'm going to leave you with. There's an elephant, and he has a really, really good friend, and it's a mouse. And the mouse climbs up on the elephant's back, and he rides around with the elephant all the time. And one day, the elephant and the mouse are running through the jungle or walking through the jungle, and they come up to a bridge. And the bridge is really rickety. And it's like narrow. And it's boards with ropes. And the elephant starts to go across the bridge. And the bridge shakes. And the wood creaks. And it creaks. And it shakes. And they get across. And you know what the mouse said? We sure managed to get across that bridge, didn't we? And, and the Lord has chosen us to partner with him. He's the elephant. We're the mouse, in case you didn't know. <laughs> And yet he's chosen us to partner with him. And that's what the cross gave us. It gave us a relationship with the living God that we can go to him and say, Lord, I have a need today. Can we talk about this? And he says, yeah, we sure can. <laughs> yeah, I'm the mouse at, at, at the house, and Tilly is the elephant. <laughs> she cleans the house real good, and then people show up and they go, oh, don't you think we did a good job putting all this together? Yeah, <laughs> Great depiction there. Isn't this beautiful, my friends, to hear all these different people come up and speak of this love affair, this relationship, this plan of God? this idea of what God is doing amongst us. This is, I just love it. I, I really, I want you to know I'm really considering taking the church that way in place of such fellowship where it's not one charismatic celebrity sitting up front here telling people what to do in their faith and how to do it, but rather the early church model. They would come together and they would speak of Jesus to each other and they would break bread and they would say, this is what Jesus is saying. The other one would say, this is what Jesus is doing. This is how we're doing this. This is how we're overcoming. And they would all speak to each other about Jesus and celebrate Jesus and break bread and talk about faith. And that was the motto, the, the, the gathering, the program of the early church was that. It wasn't about, you know, some charismatic dude or dudette that would come up front and get everybody, it was about this, you know, about this, even breaking this bread of fellowship and speaking of the goodness of God. I'm just sitting back there and thinking, wow, this is just beautiful, you know. This is just beautiful. I, I pray that we'll do more of this. Um, speak of Jesus. Um, 
I want to just uh, wrap this up. And I mean, what is there to say after this beautiful explanation and presentation of the plan of God for us? It's not about just like Easter and go to church a couple of times a year and do your thing and then, you know, put God back there in the shelf and whatever, you know. Next year, I'll come back to satisfy my mother-in-law or my father or my cousin or my dad or whatever, you know. A friend of mine told me this week, I told my son, if he goes to church on Easter Sunday, I'll get him a car before he finishes college this year. And I'm like, bad idea. Give the car to the poor. It'll do more for you and your son and the kingdom. But listen, listen, uh, the resurrection of Jesus um, has many, had many eyewitness accounts outside of biblical records. Okay, a lot of people think, oh, this is your Bible thing. This works for you. And, and people just kind of, when they have no knowledge of what they're talking about, they'll just dismiss it because they're ignorant. That's really what it is. Well, it works for you, but it doesn't work for me, whatever. No, 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 no. Listen, outside of biblical account, there were many eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Many people saw Jesus alive. Many people that knew him last week and were his enemies got to see him walking around. And they could not believe their eyes. People outside of the faith. There was plenty of undeniable evidence of the resurrection of Jesus outside of those that believed in Jesus and the resurrection. Even Jesus' enemies were in disbelief. After Sunday morning, when all those Roman, uh, you know, guards and officials, and they're all sitting back, you know, eating food and relaxing and saying, we're finally done with all this. Somebody runs to their quarters and said, somebody said that he's alive. What the heck? What do we do now? How many times can we kill him? Like Lazarus, the idea was, let's just, oh, let's just kill him again. How many times can you kill Jesus to dismiss the truth that's right in front of your eyes? And our generation is doing just the same. Our generation, we're not the Roman Empire, but with our intellectual capacity, we're doing the very same thing. We continue to dismiss the truth that's right in front of our eyes. There is an undeniable, there was an undeniable eyewitness account of Jesus uh, for those that believe in him and those that didn't that actually saw Jesus. Amongst believers alone, there were more than 500 people in Galilee that actually saw him and talked with him those, during those 40 days that Jesus was around after he came back to life. The people of Galilee to this day, those that are not believers in Galilee to this day, speak of that. It's part of their history. It's part of their writings. They learned that in schools, that there was once a guy by the name of Jesus that went to the cross, died. There was, he was put in a tomb. He was dead, and then he came back to life outside of the Bible, outside of Scripture. Some of those people that saw Jesus out of that group of 500, they were alive until 30 years later when Paul wrote the first letter of Corinthians. When Paul began to write and put out the first letter of Corinthians, because the letters were written before the Gospels. Paul wrote the letters, you know, Corinthians, Galatians, all those, Thessalonians. All those letters were written before the Gospels were even written. And some of those people were part of the 500 that saw Christ alive those 40 days. And they actually read the letter and said, yes, I was there. I saw it. For them, it wasn't a book that they were told to believe and say this is the word of God. They had been there. They saw, and it's like somebody writing what happened in this service today, and you would say next Sunday, yeah, that took place because I was there. I saw it. So that's what happened during the resurrection. So exciting. And uh, this morning, my friend, then there's a group of people like us that are blessed because Jesus said, blessed are those that believe without seeing. We have a blessing that generations before us or the generation that was there then didn't have. They just saw it and they said, yes, we are blessed because we believe without seeing. We hear and learn about the resurrection, but we didn't see it. But we do see resurrection happening Amongst us every week, right? But listen, this morning, there are those of uh, here that believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus was pierced and crushed for our transgressions, punished for us, and the punishment that was upon him actually 
paid out the freedom, the ransom that we have today. And we know that by his wounds we are healed. Julissa read that today so beautifully. It's by Jesus' wounds that we are healed. Anytime we refuse healing, we are saying to Jesus, no, it's not by your wounds that I'm healed. I'd rather give affection to my pain and stay in my hurt. If we're not embracing healing, we're saying no to Isaiah 53. It's so serious. I think about that all the time. We can actually reject the cross and the resurrection by giving affection to pain and to hurt. Over 2,000 years ago, when God wanted to show the world how much you are worth. Now think about you now. I want to shift this whole thing to you now. Now it's going to be about you. When God wanted to show the world, humanity, how much you are worth, you mean me, younger, me, older, me, thinner, me, Hispanic, me, black, me, yellow, me, whatever. Yeah, you. When God wanted to show the world how much you are worth, he sent Jesus to the cross as an exchange for you. Jesus' was tr Jesus' life was traded for yours. A payment had to be done, and there was only one way to pay it, with blood. And God said, you are worth so much to me that I will give my son to pay, to make that payment in exchange for you. That's, that's how important and worth you are. The crucifixion was not only an unspeakable, agonizing form of death, but it was utterly shameful. To die on a cross was to plumb to the lowest places of disgrace in that society. Yes, Jesus took your shame. Jesus took your shame and he stood at the cross. Oh, the nails that held Jesus to the cross. No nails held Jesus to the cross. Love for you held Jesus to the cross. His love for you held him right there to the cross. Yes, he took your shame. Your shame as in a movie in front of him, he could see it all before the foundations of the earth, before you were created. He could see the movie of your life, picture by picture. He could see your failure in shame. And Jesus said, I will take that unto me and trade my life and my love for you. The hurricane, this covenant of love that I have with you will hold me to this cross until I say it is done. Think about that picture. At the cross, Jesus was mocked, insulted, challenged on his faith. He was told specifically, if you are indeed who you say you are, if you are the king of the Jews, if you are this great king that people speak about, why don't you just save yourself? Remember that? Why don't you save yourself if you got that much power? But Jesus was not at the cross to save himself. He was at the cross to save you why won't you just save yourself because this is not what i came here to do i came here so that they will come back in fellowship with me and the father and i'm here for a mission i'm not here to save myself i'm here to save you or save us jesus knew at every moment of his journey of suffering that he had thousands if not millions of angels at his disposal at any given time, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and make a call and abort his redemptive mission with one angelical call. He could have said, angels, and it's all over in one moment. But his love for you didn't allow that. For love, he stood the plan. For obedience to the Father, he stood by the plan. Jesus wasn't trying to save himself. He was determined to save you and me. And that's why we're sitting here this morning. Uh, so we were saying, I think you still were saying, what if there was no cross and no resurrection? Where would most of us be this morning? What do you think? In prison? Some? Dead. Dead. Some? Some in great, great deep suffering? Some strung out on drugs? God knows what. Where would we be without Jesus? It was his love that held him. Oh, it was his love for you that held him to the cross. Wherever you are this morning, and however this all 
this whole resurrection, Easter religion, blah, blah, this whole scene looks to you because we, we as a people, we've done a lot of religious stuff that has nothing to do with what Jesus has done. Nothing. It just, it just looks good. We control it. We make it look so, so nice and everybody's like thinks that's what God came to do and it is. God has nothing to do with that. He has nothing to do with religion. But wherever you stand this morning, remember this. You are worth so much that his love for you held them to that cross. Why did Jesus have to die? Because of you. Everything Jesus did, everything we do, everything we do as communities built around Jesus, it's for Jesus, it's about Jesus. But when it comes to Jesus and what Jesus did, you are the center of everything. Jesus did not come to die at the cross so he could gain a kingdom. He already had a kingdom. He came to give you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus is not coming to die so he could satisfy heaven. No, he came and died so he could satisfy you and deliver you from the brokenness and the darkness that we put ourselves in by rejecting him. Jesus is the center of all things from the beginning of the Old Testament. But right now, Jesus, when it comes to what he did, you are the center of everything he did. Jesus died for you, not for himself. Jesus didn't die for heaven. He died for you. Jesus didn't come to become this important person because when you're already a king, you don't need any other position. Jesus died for you. You are the center of his death. You are a very important person. Amen? Amen? Everything, everything the Father did from the beginning, from the very beginning, was focused on His Son. And, and the Son of God came. Everything the prophets did throughout Scripture, Old Testament, for years and years they predicted, they prophesied, the sacrifices, everything was Christ, Christ, Christ. Everything was focused on Jesus and about Jesus. But when it comes to Jesus, everything He did was about you. Think of that for a second. Jesus died because of you, Jesus died for you, and Jesus rose from the dead for you as a gift. Not so that he could get up and everybody would say, see, what he said it was going to happen, he did. He doesn't need anybody to confirm his sovereignty. He already knows he's sovereign. He did yeah. it for you. Yeah. Jesus came out of that tomb on Sunday morning running like that picture. That picture is so cool. I just love that picture. Jesus came out of that tomb running into your arms because now for once and for all the way of fellowship between man and God was was reopened and he was running to your arms you know how we sing we run to the arms of Jesus he was running that's Jesus chasing out of the tomb going looking for you isn't that a, I mean doesn't that picture just mess you up I mean, I think about that. That's when I saw that picture. I saw him running for me. He's coming for me. He's running. He's running into the ages, looking for me. Because now the tomb is open. There is no more separation. The veil has been cut in two. Now this new and living way is open. And anyone, whosoever, in any condition, in any in, in any situation, you are welcome to the Father because of what Jesus did for you. Resurrection is all about you did you ever think about that before resurrection is all about you now my friends here's what we need to do die to yourself and live it live this new life that has been offered to you as a gift live all that jesus gave you resurrection is all about you resurrection is all about you resurrection is the gift of god given to you Jesus blood was shed for you you are alive today only because of his mercy and the hurricane of his love for you that's why you are here you are this morning the most important person on earth because everything Jesus did was about you but I only come to church once in a while it was about you well I'm not I'm not sure that I understand all this it was about you 
well i don't know that i deserve all this man it's already been said here today if we if we could do anything to deserve what jesus did for me who could do it right so let me close with this he didn't come to get a kingdom he came to give you a kingdom a kingdom that cannot be shaken in the words of paul in ephesians 4 with all this in your mind now therefore I urge you live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Do not do what they did in Jesus day. Amen. Jesus came and the ones that he came for did not. Hello, look look right here. Leave Adam. Look right here. Jesus came. Yes, he came and the ones that he came for did not receive him. They don't even they don't even consider him. They just stood there. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Discern the mandate that you have been given to represent Jesus in your time. Lay hold of your purpose. At the cross, my friends, death died. At the cross, death died. Now there's hope because of resurrection. Resurrection opened the door to the fountain of life and peace that will never run dry. A love that only grows, a hope that never dies. This morning, here's the statement I want to make. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty, but our hearts are full. Hallelujah. Our hearts are full. Hallelujah. And in the words of Job, Job comes way before Jesus. He says, "I know this one thing. In the midst of my trouble, I know this one thing. My redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand in the earth." Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Stand up, find three or four people and say Christ is risen. Come on. Christ is risen. Come on, say it. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Fill the house with that. Christ is risen.